0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to undertake in this audio to cover verses 25 through 33 of Romans 9. The context is this, in Romans 1 and 2, Paul said that all of mankind was under the wrath of God and therefore needs salvation. How do we get saved? Well, Paul talks about justification by faith, apart from the law, apart from works, in the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. Then he says, okay, now that we have been justified by faith in God's courtroom, how about how do we live our lives out in sanctification on this earth? So he talks about sanctification in Romans 6, 7, and 8. In Romans 6, he talks about how sin brings death. And in chapter 7, he talks about how law brings about sin and therefore indirectly brings about death. And then he says in chapter 8, how do you get rid of the law of sin and death? You live by the Spirit, let the Holy Spirit mortify the deeds of your flesh. That's chapter 8. And then he talks, so that's sanctification. He ends up in chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8, talking about our glorification, which is our ultimate sanctification. And then in chapter 9, he's returning to a theme that he's mentioned earlier in the book about why is it that Jews don't believe? And since God made all those great promises to Abraham, including Messianic promises, not to Abraham, but the other Messianic scriptures in the Old Testament, that there was going to be a Messiah, and and the promises to Abraham of land, offspring, and blessing, how are those promises fulfilled if Jews don't believe in the Messiah? Well, Paul goes to a lot of trouble in Romans 9 to show that, yes, those promises are fulfilled. They're just not fulfilled in the way the Jews thought they were going to be fulfilled. It was not Abraham's physical descendants that's going to fulfill those promises, but it's his spiritual descendants the the gen- believing Gentiles as well as believing Jews because Abraham is the father of all who believe, including Gentiles. Well, that's how the promises are going to be fulfilled. So we start now in Romans 9.25. Well, I should, I should point out also that in this first part of chapter 9, He's talked about what I just said about the problem of Jews not believing. And then he mentions that in the course of the conversation, he mentions election. And of course, there's your famous controversial passages about God elected Jacob before Esau in his mother's womb, before he had a chance to do any good or evil and so forth. But I think the main theme here is God has not failed in his promises. So we start in verse 25, Romans 9. As he also says in Hosea, I will call not my people my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. Now, also there refers back to verse 24, where Paul says this, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He's mentioned Gentiles now to show that it's not only spiritual Jews, not only believing Jews who were called, but also believing Gentiles. So he goes in verse 25, and this will illustrate the theme all the way through the end of the chapter, is he's called the Gentiles as well as the Jews. As he also says in Hosea, I will call not my people my people, and she who is unloved loved. Well, now in Hosea, the people who were not my people were unbelieving Jews, who then became God's people by becoming believing Jews. Hosea two twenty-three, I will sow her in the land for myself. I will sow her, that's Israel, in the land for myself, and I will have compassion on no compassion. He will have compassion on Israel, which does not deserve any compassion because of Israel's manifest and gross sins. Hosea continues speaking for God, I will say to not my people, you are my people. The children of Israel are not God's people because they sin like crazy, like at the golden calf incident at Mount Sinai. But God says, no, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. Israel will say, you are my God. Now, Paul takes that Scripture in Hosea, which obviously return, refers to unbelieving Israel becoming believing Israel, and he applies it to the Gentiles. How do I know that? Because of the original context refers, or I should say, the context of the preceding verse appears to the Gentiles. What's the What's the last phrase of verse 24? The ones he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. And then he quotes Hosea to show that. That which was not his people are his people. What Paul is saying is the Gentiles were not my people at first, but now they are. They were not loved at first, but now they are. Just like the unbelieving remnant of Israel was not God's people, but then they became God's people. And by the way, the theme of a remnant, we're going to be talking about that in this section. That's a big theme of Paul. It's only a minority of people who believe. And that's all it takes to fulfill God's promise, a remnant. How do I know? I've been saying that this is the theme of chapter 9. Let me give you a quote to back that up and verse 6 of chapter 9 but it is not as though the word of god has failed for not all who are descended from israel belong to israel in other words not all those jews out there who were rejecting jesus they don't necessarily belong to israel in fact they don't belong to israel it's the people who in israel who believe in israel that fulfill the promises including spiritual jews excuse me including believing gentiles who are then said to be a jew of a heart an inward jew we go to Romans 9, verse 26. And it will be in the place where they were told, You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. That verse is also from Hosea. Hosea 1.10. Yet the number of Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, You are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Now again, Hosea and God in Hosea is saying that unbelieving Israelites are not my people, but then when they start believing, they do become my people. They become the sons of the living God, and Paul is making the same application to Gentiles. They were not God, God's people at first because they were unbelievers, but now that they believe, they are now my people, and they are sons of the living God. So God, so Paul is applying what God said to the Jews. Paul's applying it to the Gentiles, and I must point out, can you imagine how this sounded to the Jewish ear? The, the average Jew thought the Gentiles were dogs of the uncircumcised. They were unbelievers. They didn't believe in God. They were pagans. They were awful people. And now Paul's saying, no, they are sons of the living God. The Jews had a hard time with that. You remember Peter struggled with that. We go to Romans 9, 27 through 28. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. Because God has to execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth, that means he's going to have to judge a lot of unbelieving Jews, and only a small remnant will be saved. This is the idea in Isaiah that Paul quotes. And again, the, the overall thrust of this is just because it's a small number of people saved, that doesn't mean that the promises aren't fulfilled all it takes is a remnant. So let's see where Paul quotes Isaiah. This is in Isaiah 10, verses 22 through 23. Israel, even if your people were as numerous as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Now, notice Isaiah doesn't say a remnant will be saved. He says a remnant will return because in the original context here, Isaiah is predicting the return from Babylon, the the, the Jews in captivity. And of course, that was true. Only a small number of the Jews in captivity returned to Israel. So, But in, in Isaiah, he's talking about a physical return from Babylon. But Paul is not talking about a physical return from Babylon, he's talking about a remnant of people who will be saved. And that would, of course, include believing Jews, a small number of believing Jews who would be saved. So, Paul, so Isaiah continues in Isaiah 10, verses 22. Destruction has been decreed, justice overflows. For throughout the land, the Lord God of hosts is carrying out a destruction that was decreed. See, the Lord executed his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. That corresponds to Isaiah 10.23, for throughout the land the Lord God of hosts is carrying out a destruction that was decreed, the destruction of Israel, in other words. So God executes his sentence, but he nonetheless saved a remnant, the remnant who were taken off into captivity to Babylon. They came back. Paul uses that as an example of, hey, there's going to be a remnant of Jews saved, people who believe in the Messiah, Jewish people who believe in the Messiah. And I do believe he's talking about Jews here, not Gentiles, because there's a lot of Gentiles, Gentiles, but very few Jews who believed, and this was what the whole apologetic point against Paul was, how can God's promises said to be fulfilled when so few Jews believe? As the NIV Stutter Bible points out, the vast majority of believers will be Gentiles. Or what were Gentiles? Verse 30 seems to suggest this. I'll drop down to verse 30. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness. It sounds like Paul is saying, okay, look, they got it, the Jews didn't. There's only a very few believing members of the Jewish nation, but there's a whole ton of Gentiles. The implication is there. There's a lot of Gentiles who have found righteousness, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Verse 31 also tends to to tend in that direction, but Israel pursuing the law for righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. So Israel didn't make it. And verse 30, the Gentiles did make to achieve righteousness It came from faith. So again, the idea is there's lots of Gentiles and very few Jews. Well, how do we explain that? And of course, the solution is is because the Gentiles are spiritual Israel, and so therefore the promises to Israel have been fulfilled in spiritual Israel mainly. Now notice Paul mentions, quoting Isaiah, that God will, the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. God does execute judgment. He is a God of wrath as well as a God of love. But when he executes his, executes his judgment, he saves a remnant. So when he carried out his sentence, he cut off and destroyed the greater part of the Jews. That's why there's so few Jews that believe that most of them got destroyed because of their unbelief. Now, here's a quote from the commentator Hendrickson. If God bears with great patience those he knows will never be saved, how should we not also have patience with those who have never experienced God's grace? And that's a good application point there. The majority of people don't know God's grace. We might, we might ought to be patient with them. It's sad what they do. And this is real hard because, like, for example, in America, when you see people openly faulting God and trashing Christians and, and taking God's name in vain, And hating him and and so forth, it's real hard to have any sympathy with these people. But we have to remember, these people are headed straight to hell. They're headed to an eternity without the presence of God, because that's what they want. They don't like God, and they they won't get him in this life, and they won't have him in the next life either, because that's what they want. We need to be patient with them, even as we oppose their nonsense. Romans 9.29, and just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Paul is quoting Isaiah 1, nine here. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah, or Sodom and Gomorrah were ultimately, utter, utterly destroyed. They're gone now. There's nothing there but a bunch of sand and tar, I guess. I actually looked at the Wikipedia to see the pictures of the area down there, and there's they they do have some ruins, archaeological ruins down there, surprisingly, but it doesn't look like much. But Isaiah is saying, there's always a remnant. There's a few survivors. And Paul is saying, quoting Isaiah to say, hey, there were a few survivors back then who survived the judgment that God put on Israel at the time of the Babylonian captivity. And there's a few survivors today in my time because even though most of the Jews oppose me, there's still a few that believe. Not to mention all the Gentiles that are coming in, too. The Lord of hosts, of course, that means the Lord of angels. Host means angels. We now go to Romans 9:30. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. So Paul anticipating an objection here. Why are God's chosen people so few and the Gentiles so many? Well, here's the answer, because they pursued righteousness apart from the law. They used faith instead of the law, like you Jews, unbelieving Jews are doing. Now, when people complain to Paul that God's chosen people so few and why are the Gentiles so many, there's two ways he could answer that. John Gill says he could say this. God is sovereign and who are you, O man, to complain that he chooses to choose Gentiles instead of Jews? And that's a good answer. The NIV Study Bible has another answer. Well, don't complain. The Gentiles exercised faith and the Jews didn't. So there's your answer. The Gentiles believed and had faith. The Jews did not. So the Jews have nobody to blame but themselves. So don't complain that there are so few Jews that believe. It's not God's fault. His promises did not fail. We go to verse 31. But Israel, pursuing the law for righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. And of course, trying to keep the law to get righteousness has a backwards effect. The more you try to keep the law, the more you achieve sin in your life, and the more you achieve, uh, achieve flesh in your life, and judgment in your life, and condemnation in your life, and failure in your life. Romans 6.14, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. Another way of saying that is sin will rule over you because you are under law but not under grace. You want to have sin rule over you? Get under the law and try to keep it. Romans 7.11, he says the same thing. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, through the law, deceived me and through it killed me. You want the law to stir up sin? I could quote you that verse too about how the law stimulates sin. I'm not going to, but the idea is, is that Law produces sin, produces death. It does not produce righteousness. Only faith does that. Righteousness apart from the law. And the Gentiles did this. Nobody can keep the law. Nobody can get righteous by keeping the law. Didn't James say that? James 2.10. He should know he he was a Jewish guy. James 2.10. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. So that means if you're not perfect, you're going to suffer the condemnation of the law. You will not see righteousness and you will not see God. Romans 9:32. Why is that? Why is what? That's from verse 31. Israel has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Verse 22. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So Israel's problem wasn't that it pursued the wrong thing. They were pursuing the right thing. They were pursuing righteousness before God. That's a good thing. The problem was they pursued it in the wrong way. Not by faith, but by trying to keep the law by doing good works. Now Paul says that they, the unbelieving Jews, stumbled over the stumbling stone. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says to the Corinthians, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolish, foolish, foolishness to the Gentiles. A stumbling block to the Jews. The metaphor is fairly easy. you walking down a road, I've done this, you trip over a rock and you fall flat on your face. That's what the Jews did. It was hard for them not to stumble. They were expecting a triumphant Messiah to knock out those nasty Romans, to free the land of Israel, to give them a free country, and then they could rule on, on crown, they could wear crowns and rule on thorns and ride on white horses, and there would be peace all over the world, and Jerusalem would be in charge of the world. And then all of a sudden, now they're told they got to believe that the Messiah is a crucified criminal. Yeah, that was tough. That's a stumbling block, all right. We go to verse 33 of Romans 9, and we'll finish up As it is written, look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, yet the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. So, Paul is quoting Isaiah. He's talking to Jews now, so he's quoting the Old Testament to impress them. Even the Old Testament prophets said there was going to be a stumbling block in Zion, and his name was Jesus Christ, is what Paul's getting at. I'm putting a stone in Zion. It's a stumbling block, a stumbling stone. In Zion, of course, Zion is the hill in Jerusalem and it's used the Nekity as a part for the whole metaphor to stand for Jerusalem. So Isaiah's Paul is saying, quoting Isaiah, Look, I am putting a stone in Jerusalem. That was that was Jesus. Now Paul is combining two passages from Isaiah in verse thirty three, so let's read those. Isaiah eight fourteen, he who that's the Messiah, will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. There's a messianic scripture for you right there. Jesus is the sanctuary to all who believe in him. He is a protection, a place of protection, a sanctuary. But for the two houses of Israel, that's Israel, northern Israel, and southern Israel, Judah, they're going to stumble over Jesus. And in fact, by opposing Jesus, the Jews got their kingdom destroyed in A.D. 70. That's how they stumbled. They stumbled and were put to shame. But those who believe on him will not be put to shame because Christians believe in Jesus and he is their sanctuary. Just like in AD 70, when the the Jewish kingdom got wiped out, all the Christian Jews in Jerusalem got saved as they escaped to Pella. They were not put to shame. Jesus was their sanctuary. All right, so Paul quoted Isaiah 8.14, and then also he quotes Isaiah 28.16. Therefore the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, the one who believes will be unshakable. Now, of course, this stone in Zion, this is the new Zion, the new Jerusalem, the church. Jesus is the cornerstone of it, and which means the house can't stand without a cornerstone. I think, some, I think the word is ambiguous. I know in the Greek it's ambiguous. It's either cornerstone or headstone. But the point is, it's a stone. If you pull it out of the building, the building falls down. So it's precious. It's valuable. It's been tested. Jesus was tested. He went through trials of suffering and fire. Jesus is a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. If you believe in Jesus, you ain't going down. I'm telling you, there's enough in this world to scare the pants off anybody that's living on this planet. The whole world lives in fear. I don't care how secure and how rich and how pompous and how assured people look. Deep down inside, there's a gnawing insecurity that something could go wrong. But our belief in the Messiah will be unshakable. Now, this idea of a precious tested cornerstone in Zion is used... Quite often in the scripture a proof that Jesus was the Messiah. For example, Peter in 1 Peter 2.4, Coming to him a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. Rejected by the Jews, but chosen and valuable to God. And he's a living stone because Jesus was a living Messiah. So the metaphor is sort of mixed a little bit. The stone means he is strong and sturdy and he upholds his kingdom, his building, if you will, the building, the church of God. And he's living because he's not dead, he's alive. 1 Peter 2, 6-8, For it is contained in Scripture, Look, I lay a stone in Zion. Again, Peter's quoting the same passage in Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. Look, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in them will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, that would be the Jews, the builders Or the Jews, the stone that was rejected is Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected, this one, has become the cornerstone. And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. And that's what the Jews did. They stumbled big time over Jesus. They stumbled because they disobeyed the message they were destined for this. Ooh, There's a little bit of predestination there. They were destined for stumbling. Oh, did God deliberately choose them to go to hell? No. Well, we won't get into theology of that. We'll leave that for the theologians to worry about that. Again, let me go back to the theme here. Why was, well, before I do that, let me let me give you some other places where this stone idea is quoted. In the Old Testament, Psalms 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Luke 20, verses 17 through 18. This is the New Testament. But he looked at them, that's Jesus, looked at them his audience, and said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected, this has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and if it falls on anyone, it will grind him to powder. So Jesus uses that Isaiah prophecy to try to prove his messiahship to the rejecting Jews. And he warns them, Hey, you're going to get ground to powder if you reject me, which, of course, they did, and they got ground to powder. Eighty seventy. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished Romans 9. We will next, in the next audio, turn to Romans 10, where Paul will continue talking about his concern for these Jews who have not believed, and then he will also reprise some of his themes about justification by faith. We'll take that up next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that one. Hope you enjoyed this one.